Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So, Henry Kissinger died last week, and now nobody can, you know, post the fun meme of death at the uh, at the claw machine, uh, trying to yes, Henry Kissinger even in there as the next person dies. You know, that was always the the funny one going on. But a lot of people, of course look at Henry Kissinger and they say, okay, this guy's like Darth Vader. Basically he's pure evil. He's hated by a lot of people on the left and the right. And I think it was important to take a look at who Henry Kissinger is and a little bit of his history. Cause I do think there's a lot of controversy. I do think there's a lot to dislike there, but I do think he's also a very important guy who played a critical role in shaping the world that we look at today, the world order that we're trying to understand today. And so it's, it, behooves us to take a moment and look at his legacy and understand a more complicated legacy that has been left by his passing. Luckily, one of your favorite co-hosts is a foreign policy wonk, and he's a devotee of Kissinger's writings. And so today I will be joined, of course, by the Prudentialist. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Oren. I, I was also pleasant. I was driving home from church that Wednesday evening, and I saw my timeline filled with the the finally memes of all of the the death and the Henry Kissinger and the, and the claw machine. And uh, yeah, no, I think it's important that we discuss him for a man that lived as long as he did and had such an outstanding influence on America's foreign policy. It is very important for us to sort of look at him not through the moral lens that we often ascribe our current foreign policy elite, but as a, a man contextualized in history and time. Yeah, it's important, especially because there's, of course, and I think a healthy move by many people on the right to become less enthusiastic about foreign conflict, to become a little more isolationist, uh, isolationist a little more uh, interested in the well-being of the United States and a little less enthusiastic about empire maintenance. But at the same time, that can lead them to looking and projecting those understandings of our current situation back on figures who were tackling geopolitical issues that were very different, a world that was very different from the one that we're looking at today. And so I think it's important, like you said, to kind of contextualize that so people can better understand what these events mean. So we're going to dive into Henry Kissinger, uh, kind of his legacy, the complicated uh, history involved. But before we do that, guys, let's hear from today's sponsor. For years, Hollywood's been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended towards the anti-hero, a flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, the True Story of the Robertson Family is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie and you'll see there's always hope. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, triumphs, and values that shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to stream it here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription, but if you'd rather purchase it and stream it, here rather than Apple or Amazon, we wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to do that. Make sure to act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robinson story on Blaze TV. You can buy it today at blazetv.com, The Blind, for $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash The Blind. All right, so, Prudentialist, when we dive into this, I guess there's a bunch of different places we could 
begin, but maybe let's just get a brief background on Kissinger first, right? As I understand, he was a German Jew who immigrated into the United States, kind of a, a common theme of trying to get out during the during the late 1930s, ended up fighting in World War II, and then entered into academia. And he's he's one of those guys that quickly ended up becoming uh, someone who was asked about all referenced by all kinds of different think tanks, different organizations, uh, because he started building a reputation for understanding uh, foreign policy and, and warfare and diplomacy in a way that a lot of people didn't at that time. Yeah. So as we can tell from the length of his life, he was born in 1923. He would later, of course, leave with his family, immigrating from Germany in the 1930s in the midst of that regime, um, putting on its persecution and its political attitudes towards uh, individuals of a Jewish background. Um, and of course, he would later serve in the United States Armed Forces. He was present uh, and served the rank as a sergeant. Later, he would go on um, and find himself in the Ivy Leagues. His bachelor's thesis is actually the reason why there's a, yeah, so. uh, a lengthy limit for, for why, uh, how much you can submit for your undergraduate degree. Um, he wrote about um, Spangler, Toynbee, and Kant and sort of a reflections on history, which is actually really well worth your time. It's like 400 I, pages long. I, th I found that very interesting. Yeah, that the, those would be his references for, for that record-breaking uh uh, thesis, but sorry. Well, I mean, if you can't talk about those people without going in, into length. And I mean, it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise anyone that what will serving with President Nixon, he would give the president an abridged sort of one volume copy of The Decline of the West by Spangler. But, um, you know, he'd later on get his master's degree, I believe, at Harvard University before getting his PhD, which has been since, you know, his PhD thesis was republished in 1957. Um, and it's about, uh, you know, Metternich, Castlereagh, and the Concert of Peace, sort of about the understanding of the post-Napoleonic era and the concert of Europe as we know it. And that thesis alone, alongside his sort of monumental work in 1994, Diplomacy, is really the key way of understanding Henry Kissinger's worldview, um, just sort of in general, that he views the ongoing conflict of the Cold War, and especially the end of it, as this sort of post-Napoleonic era in which we have to restructure the, the balance of power and as we see it. Because, you know, Metternich looking at Napoleon and sort of in like a Thomas Carlyle sense, like you have these great men of history that sort of sweep around and fundamentally change the world as we know it. And whoever's there to pick up the pieces has to fundamentally ensure that anytime a great man comes along, usually millions of people die. I mean, like this is something that, you know, Carlyle points out about like the about Muhammad. You know, mm -hmm. well, I don't view him as a prophet, right? There's a, million, a billion people do. And, you know, from 100 years since Muhammad's death until 732, you know, the century after he died, you know, they're sweeping hundreds of thousands have been killed. And the idea of a, a Muslim caliphate had spread as far north as the Pyrenees into northern Europe. So, I mean, uh, for Kissinger, it's sort of fundamentally understanding how do you maintain a, a balance of power that can effectively either A, contain um, the, the opposing force or B, really understand and utilize that this like post-revolutionary force of communism has been defeated. And for Kissinger, that's really a big, you know, I guess maybe the modus operandi or reason to taunt for his work and what he had done there. And I know that there are a lot of people that will look at the situation in Vietnam or Salvador Allende and in Chile, or of course the bombing of Cambodia and things like that. And I understand that there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction to take the moral position Rightfully so, I think in a lot of ways, we have a, a very strong distaste for war. 
But I also know that in the United States these days, there are three generations that have no memory of the Cold War and barely have a memory of the global war on terror, which are the millennials, Gen Z, and Gen Alpha. And I think it's really important for us to understand our aversion for war, especially because we we live in the aftermath of the global war on terror. And we spent 20 years in the Middle East wondering what did we really accomplish. But in the time where Henry Kissinger really rises to prominence, especially under Nixon, I think it's very crucial to understand that in the like late 1960s, early 1970s, this is sort of a, a really large portion and where you see sort of this Maoist third like world order system idea really come into play. You have the first and the second world, which of course we apply towards you know the the West, the NATO-led powers of the United States versus sort of the uh, Chinese and sort of the Soviet blocs. And then you have the third world, which are either the unaffiliated or what often gets labeled as the global South. And I think that it's really important to contextualize when you hear people say complain about Catholicism in South America, you have this concept of liberation theology, where it's sort of this um, sort of sacralized or desacralized understanding of, say, Roman Catholicism through the precipice and hermeneutic lens of, like, you know, revolutionary Marxist-Leninism. And for America at this time, especially in the 1960s and 70s, you kind of have questions wondering, well, how can we ensure that you don't have ideological successive takeovers in, in the world that could significantly threaten America's hegemony and legitimacy on, in, on the world stage. And it's important to conceptualize that the term legitimacy, as we know in international relations, is really coined by Kissinger. It's not really this concept of justice. It's not really a concept of, um, you know, oh, we're the, the righteous moral order in the world, but we're legitimacy in the, in the stakes that, like, if we're to establish a rules-based system, we have the clout, capability, capital, and military power to back it up. And you consider our, our position and the tenuous relationship with, say, the United States and Israel in the early formations of the 1960s. You see what had happened in Korea, the ongoing decades-long um, American presence in Vietnam. Like, people, you know, we, we think of, like, Nixon and we think of LBJ and we think of Kennedy as being the ones that really kick it off. Uh, America had been giving arms, supplies, aid, and intelligence to the French and later other, um, you know, rebel forces inside Indochina or Vietnam, as we know it, since the Truman administration. Like, this has been a decades-long policy that I think we, we, we simply put in because more American boots got on the ground. Now, there's a lot there that Kissinger definitely can be rightfully blamed for, I think, especially once we get towards, like, you know, peace with honor and sort of the Vietnamization in part because he's limited by both what him and Nixon can do in relation to Congress. But the, the the global picture for the United States at this time is where, you know, are we going to wage a nuclear war with the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union? And are we going to be geographically isolated as a country to where Mexico, South America, parts of East Asia, and of course the front on, you know, where the fold of gap's going to kick off, you know, the, the World War III festivities at the time. Uh, America was kind of going to be isolated, and that was a severe concern for Kissinger, as well as for a lot of cold warriors at the time. And I, I guess I'll conclude this rant by saying, as we get into some of the rest of his life and his thinking and his work, that, you know, we we have a strong distaste for our foreign policy officials today. Like, you have every reason to not like Antony Blinken. You have every reason to not like John Kerry or Barack Obama or Madeleine Albright. But you have to understand that, you know, 50 years ago, people like James Baker, Henry Kissinger, George Kennan, and Robert Conquest were a totally different breed and caliber of men 
that were responding to what they saw as an ideological but also existential threat were you know, if World War III were to break out, it's not like the horrors of Stalingrad or the Battle of the Bulge, which are like millions dead in a matter of minutes. And you don't have a lot of time to answer for that. Whereas now we sort of appreciate this quote unquote unipolar moment, as Charles Krauthammer wrote about in 1990, that has fundamentally been taken advantage of by both hubris, but also uh, just a, a complete hollowing out of America to a point where even Henry Kissinger himself in 2008 was like, Globalization's not going away, but there are very serious debates about how far it's gone when it comes to maintaining national defense. And America doesn't have the capability to defend itself anymore, at least on an industrial capacity. And so nowadays you see that with like President Biden, where they're like, well, we're going to reshore our businesses. We're going to make, you know, manufacturing and microchip plants here in America. And mainstream media will tell you, like, we don't have the brain power, the capacity to do it very quickly. It'll take decades. And that's a consequence of sort of this post-war, quote-unquote, new world order, as George H.W. Bush put it. But I think that that's sort of a very important preempt here. I mean, mm. you can touch the guy, but I don't think he's the the Darth Vader or the the Dick Cheney whispering into people's ear that people want to, to make him out to be. Yeah, to be clear, like, we're not going to be saying this guy, you know, didn't make any mistakes or that this guy didn't, didn't commit war crimes. The point is that giving giving that context that you just gave is really important because it's easy today to look at the world around us and not understand a scenario in which there's a very real threat of nuclear annihilation. You know, today it's just something that is, it's, it's a quaint thing that the uh, warning videos from the fifties told kids to get under their desk about, right? Like that, that's just, it, it's such a, it seems like such a, uh, threat that has passed us by it can't possibly occur it's not something to really worry about it's not something uh it, it was just uh, you know maybe used to gin up things or something but no this is this was a real struggle an existential struggle a scenario in which like you said the cost of conflict was just insane and so people made very different calculations during that time now some of them may be justified in retrospect some may not but it's it's really easy to look at you know different leaders in critical moments of history and project your knowledge of events backward onto them and then judge the way that they assess things in that moment. And so I think it is critical to kind of hold on to that frame because we have to understand that a false step by any of these actors really could end in a horrific uh, slaughter, uh, many magnitudes above kind of. Uh, what what people now attribute to their actions and so that that has to weigh heavily on kind of any understanding of what decisions that they made now you mentioned Metternich in there and I think that you know again I don't know uh, Kissinger's writings or philosophy as well as you do but from what I've gleaned that's that's a really uh, critical influence on him and the way that he saw kind of the post-world war to kind of arrangement of of peace and cold war the, the way that that should be structured in order so maybe you could take a moment. You said that these are reactions to great men. Were, were Metternich and then thereby Kissinger attempting to contain the actions of great men? Were they looking to recover from them, balance them, prevent the, the arising of great men? Are, are they more interested in these supranational organizations that now rule many of our interactions? What, what, what does that look like from these men's viewpoint? Absolutely. And I think that's a good thing to point out. And I mean, for full disclosure, I mean, I am, I'm definitely a Metternich fan. You can look at my profile picture. This is based off of a, a portrait of Metternich. I just put a frog on top of it. But uh, 
for for Metternich uh, and also the influence that that has on Henry Kissinger, uh, Metternich is you know a great Austrian count and diplomat that is playing a huge role in sort of maintaining uh, his diplomacy during the Napoleonic era, but also sort of trying to establish what the European world is going to look like now that Napoleon is gone. And so, you know, I, I kind of consider Metternich this sort of like in, of his own time, like this sort of post-war reactionary, wherein, you know, he would write, you know, quote, and I have my notes in front of me, so I apologize if it looks like I'm not paying attention to your, to your audience. But states, just as human beings, often transgress laws. The only difference is the severity of their penalty. Society has its laws just as nature and man. It is with old institutions, it is with old men that can never be young again. This is the way of social order, and it cannot be different because of the law of nature. The moral world has its storms just like the material ones. And one can never cover the world with ruins without crushing men beneath them. And so these were ideas that Metternich had believed in, who I, you know, whose whose sole point of understanding sort of the world order that he was trying to help establish was is that freedom and liberty, even in sort of this like post-revolutionary sense in America and more especially in France, that he would see, you know, ravage Europe again in his lifetime in 1848, is, is that like you need to have order. And so for Kissinger, you know, this means having some really strict laws on like the freedom of the press. And being more concerned about like political pamphlets, but also at the same time, um, you know, Metternich himself was, you know, kind of the guy that we see as the responsibility of sort of like the Congress of Vienna and the Concert of Europe, which lasts from about 1815 to, to 1913, although some scholars would argue it dies in 48. But that's a discussion for a later time. Um, you know, during this time, he was looking towards sort of a a way in which every coalition that was going to be brought up in, in treaties or packs of defense could be countered by one another. And so you, you kind of see this happen, especially in, in Vienna where Metternich is trying to more or less look at the crisis at 1812 with, with Napoleon and look at how everything is going. And, and for him, you know, we have to understand that sometimes there are men out there that can be real problems for your own state or for an order that you're trying to establish. And for Kissinger, you know, you can see this influence play out uh, in some of his, you know, I, I suppose his more spicier quotes, uh, you know, most famously in relation to, say, in 1973, uh, you know, it's a, it's a shame that both sides can't lose. Uh, or when it comes to dealing with uh, the election in Chile, right, with, you know, Salvador Allende, you know, why don't, you know, it's not the point of the voters to, to make bad decisions. And so when you're trying to balance power on a, on a power politics scale, uh, morality or the quote unquote, like American way in sort of the Mosca and Pareto sense are political formulas that you use to sort of justify your actions at home. And this is something that George Kennan talks about in American diplomacy, right? Where America is really good at selling a warm fuzzy to itself. Like we can talk about, and I mean, we still do this to this day, right? Like uh, Barack Obama famously, you know, moved the the political narrative in Afghanistan and Iraq from the war on terrorism and getting a, a vengeance on Osama bin Laden in 9-11 to uh, women's rights and education and eventually like LGBT plus stuff in Afghanistan. Um, and this was used to sell sort of a progressive political formula to the United States to sort of justify our ongoing presence over there, which is a radical departure from why we got in there in the first place. Right. And, and as for Henry Kissinger, you know, you, you look at this sort of understanding of this concert system that he's not looking at it just as in the here and now about nuclear war or finding a way to contain uh, the Soviet Union. But he's also looking at 
Can we outlast the Soviet Union? And more importantly, can we create a world wherein the likelihood of a, of a, you know, a, a bipolarity doesn't happen anymore? And if it does happen, can this be maintained? Um, and this is sort of like these undercurrents of maintenance and balance of power, not only just find themselves in the 19th century, but he's trying to establish in his own right, and to some degree with significant success, the, his own sort of concert of the world uh, for the 20th century. Because if we look at sort of uh, the Napoleonic or the post-French revolutionary ideas that would ravage Europe throughout the 19th century, to a point where, you know, towards the end of the 19th century, you've got people like Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, and Nietzsche all wondering if God is dead and what's the point of like living in an ordered society. Uh, Kissinger's looking at the 20th century on the lines of that, okay, we have this great, overwhelming, and all encompassing sort of ideology. And, and, and in his book, Diplomacy in 1994, you look at just how strong sort of Soviet policy was at this time. I mean, you have the Popular Front. You have an intensive intelligence network and a popular media consensus to where, you know, at, during the Cold War, the Soviets were giving millions of dollars to Hollywood to sort of promote, you know, revolutionary and communist causes that would be the equivalent of us funding a modern day congressional campaign in the 2020s. Like it's an insane amount of money that you're flinging to help win an ideological battle. And so for Kissinger, it's sort of this recognition and understanding that the world that we're in is an existential crisis and how do we maintain the survivability of that? And I feel like this ties in very well when we talk about executive authority or when we see individuals like Thomas Massey in Congress or Rand Paul complain about executive powers in the war, where a lot of those are consequences of the Cold War era and sort of the understanding that there's not a lot of time to make decisions. So we, and the advent of nuclear weapons in the Cold War, like you can't go back to like Congress making formal declarations of war because um, your decision response time is minutes. Congress isn't going to make a vote that quickly. Never has. Um, right. And so I think that it's very important for us to realize that for, for Kissinger, you know, Metternich is the, the, the biggest influence that he has. But alongside there, you understand that, you know, as he famously said, illegal is easy to do, unconstitutional might take some days. And he is responsible partially for things like the church committee in 1975 after Watergate and what the intelligence in community can and can't do. But that era of politics and that era of like great power statesmen, I, I don't think is really present with us anymore um, outside of the fact that we kind of just stand on the shoulders of, of, of giants. Although Kissinger physically speaking was no giant, he's a very short <laughs> man, but ideologically speaking and the ability to wield power, he was certainly one of them. So when does Kissinger really formally entered the scene obviously like I said he's an academic he's he's well respected and written uh, some very important uh papers and and, and uh, whatnot on these issues but when does he really start having a more direct influence when it comes to american foreign policy american diplomacy sure so uh i would argue that he probably really does start off during the eisenhower administration shortly after he gets out of college um, you know, he's he served and he remained on Harvard as like a department of government. He he served as uh, some educator and a faculty member. But in 1959, he joins the operations coordinating board for the National Security Council. And uh, he's there for a few years before going back into sort of the NGO private sector, because um, later he works for the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. But during that time, he uh, 
he, he talked about nuclear weapons and foreign policy. He, he was looking at nuclear doctrine at the time. He was very critical of Eisenhower just being like, well, listen, we, we have, you know, tactical nuclear weapons. We still have more nuclear weapons than the Soviets can produce at this current time in the early 1950s. So why don't we just nuke as much as humanly possible? And I'm condensing sort of this policy for the sake of our time here. But, uh, you know, he he was more or less just trying to say that that's not a likely way to, to win things because, you know, you, you basically throw out what's left of any political legitimacy from, you know, by using nuclear weapons all the time. Because, I mean, nuclear weapons had only increased in their power and capacity. So I would start, start argue in 1955, he enters the scene. He, of course, starts working even closer in the operations research office. Um, for the Center of International Affairs, which is something he co-founded with Robert Bowie. Uh, he works for, you know, the Department of State, the RAND Corporation, Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. But, you know, he uh, first off really gets himself more involved in politics in the 1960s, um, primarily because he, he was working for uh, the, the Rockefeller Republicans. Like he, he saw this as his gateway into further foreign policy, you know, lending the ear of potentially one of the most powerful politicians in, in the, in the America at the time. Of course, um, Nelson Rockefeller never becomes president. And I would argue that that's probably a really good thing for the conservative movement in the United States. Cause if you, if you thought, <laughs> if you thought like the Goldwater conservative movement had failed, like Nelson Rockefeller is far more milk toast and far more liberal than that. Uh, but he meets, he meets Nixon during this time. And those two, uh, you know, eventually get closer together, despite the fact that they never really had a, like a, like a, a really close friendship. They're, they're not buddy, buddy, like say you and I are, they're more like, you know, they're, they're two men that click on a policy basis. It's like having a really good boss, but, um, he had considered him one of the most dangerous men of all time to run for president. Yeah. Um, however, you know, those two would end up working together. And after Nixon becomes president in January, 1969, after he's sworn in, uh, Kissinger's appointed to the National Security Advisor. And so you already have a man who has probably a great volume of work on nuclear weapons, international politics, and theory. And now he's, you know, in the most, one of the most powerful cabinet level positions uh, in the Nixon White House, which is National Security Advisor. But, um, you know, everyone wants to say he comes on the scene with Nixon. But I mean, this guy had been involved in academias in the 50s. I mean, he, he had written criticisms of Eisenhower. He was working for the Rand Corporation. He had worked for the Rockefeller Brothers. Like, for we talk about managerialism a lot and career entryists and strivers. And I mean, Kissinger was one of those men that just, you know, if he couldn't get a job, he would found something and write his papers there. And, you know, he's got a, a lengthy bibliography that I think is still well worth reading to this day. So... Like you said, he he and Nixon—that's where a lot of people start the history. He's got a, he's got a lot of backstory before that, but I think that's where a lot of people are going to focus. So we could probably go ahead and pick up there. He and Nixon have a good working relationship. They're not, they're not friends in the sense like you're talking about, but but they're people who who certainly work well together. Nixon has interestingly been rehabilitated in many ways, I think, by a lot of modern conservatives who now understand the ways in which he was kind of forced out uh, by, by uh, elements of what today would be called kind of the deep state. Kissinger seems to have a, you know, a different feeling, I guess, you know, uh, uh, the way that, that he is approached. So when we look at Kissinger's role, obviously a lot of people are going to look at his role with Vietnam. 
Um, what is his relationship to that? How involved was he? Uh, it, you know, uh, what parts of that are he is he directly involved in? How much is he tangentially involved in? And what does that say about his legacy there related direct? Because I think that's where most liberals hate him from is, of course, the Vietnam War. Uh, but 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 what what is his real role there? Yeah, no, I think that's a really important thing to consider. Um, as I had mentioned, like the Vietnam War has been this long going policy really since the Truman administration right out like during and after World War Two. And both, you know, from Truman all the way to, you know, Nixon and sort of the closing out of the final like leaving of troops from Saigon in, in 75, um, the last helicopter out as it's been famously photographed. Like we were there basically for almost 30 years. And it's a very important thing to consider how much of our aid is there. So um, Kissinger, of course, gets in, you know, he's, he's national security advisor and secretary of state during this time. Um, and uh, he's he's been involved, obviously. I mean, he visited Vietnam, um, in 65 and, and in 66, he was a, a consultant, uh, to the ambassador to Saigon by another sort of well-known, very older political dynasty from Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., who was the, the ambassador at the time. And, uh, he was sort of this intermediary to sort of negotiate things between the two. But after, uh, coming into office with Nixon in 69, you know, the the strategy really does change to where, you know, maybe we can have us, you know, an opportunity to essentially pull out um, and, and get the, uh, you know, get the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong to sort of just get their troops out of South Vietnam uh, and to do this uh, and have a coalition government, which, of course, we've kind of seen this happen before in other places in, in American foreign policy. Uh, this doesn't really work because Nixon sort of disagrees with Kissinger over the concept that, listen, um, you know, if you have a coalition government with the North Vietnamese, you're essentially giving the Soviet Union an upper hand in Vietnam. And those political victories are very important for the left and, and progressivism in general. Um, because as we've noticed in American leftism and progressivism, really in Western countries, there's like a very thin degree of separation between just like unabashed, like, Bolshevism uh, and sort of the progressivism that we call it. Like, there's a reason why a lot of people like to call, um, you know, the modern sort of day of like technocratic globalism is just like gay race communism. And they're like, they're not wrong for no, like, a variety of reasons. No. <laughs> um, I would really recommend people read a book by uh, a Polish man uh, named Lazard Legutko uh, called The Demon and Democracy. It was published in like 2018. And he was basically arguing that. He was asking the question, like, how come we didn't arrest or have any like Nuremberg trials for communists after the Cold War in like Eastern Europe? And Lazard, Lazard Legutko basically makes the point that like, well, because a lot of communists make really good social Democrats and really good progressive liberals. And that's sort of the problem with our democratic system today. Uh, and that, that's uh, that's something that's really important to consider here. Um, you know, Kissinger initially didn't think South Vietnam was particularly important. But, you know, we have to support it because America is a global power. And that, again, that legitimacy question has to be kept in mind. Like if America doesn't back its allies, what's the point? And this sort of becomes an expansion of two key issues. One, like the strategy of containment that is most famously authored by the late and great George Kennan, who also lived to be like 100 something years old and a great personal influence on me. Uh, alongside uh, the, the the Truman Doctrine um, that had really been in place about sort of just you know fighting communism wherever you see it. Uh, now, of course, um, 
operation menu, you know, there are, there's documented opposition to it. Um, ironically, Niall Ferguson or Neil Ferguson. We should probably uh, clarify what that is. Yeah. Uh, operation menu is the, the covert strategic air command bombing of Cambodia from like uh, basically March of 1969 to May 1970. So it's like a year of just bombing, um, you know, the Cambodians, but also like we're mainly also where the Viet Cong are going through the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And of course, this is famously associated with the deaths of, you know, tens of thousands of civilians. Um, this is where most famously you get the, the case against Henry Kissinger um, written by the late Christopher Hitchens that like these are war crimes. This was done covertly. This was not uh, publicly known. Um, and of course, you're also bombing the Khmer Rouge in, in Cambodia as well. Uh, and this is also in the backdrop that peace talks between um, the South Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese is not going anywhere at all. Uh, you know, like, you know, Nguyen Than Thieu, who is the South Vietnamese president at the time, he doesn't want like America to leave because he knows that he doesn't have the political capital or the military prowess to like fight this war against the North Vietnamese. And he's also incredibly concerned about what's going to happen in Cambodia after America goes, um, which, you know, also kind of echoes some of the things that we've seen in today's yeah. foreign policy from leaders. But um, uh, these are, of course, very heavy things. Right. And uh, we, you know, we do have to, we, we want to leave. And um, of course, this is also in the midst of like, the Pentagon Papers, the the this is where, of course, the the information leaks that this is what America had been doing in Cambodia. This is where you get the famous free speech case about the freedom of the press and being able to publish these, like you know, very secret, classified, your eyes only documents. But um, you know, Kissinger sort of recognizes that you kind of have to do it, and um, you know, bombing Cambodia. Uh, will disrupt raids from the Viet Cong and the Khmer Rouge from attacking South Vietnam. And if your policy is to like defend South Vietnam and to ensure that communism doesn't win here, because you think that this means the Soviets will have greater access to, you know, the Asiatics, then you, you, you do what you have to do. I'm not defending it in the sense that, you know, this was the moral or right thing to do. Um, but I think it's also important to consider that, like, if you find Henry Kissinger's position on Cambodia and the bombing of them, the civilians there to be bad, I really hope that you have the same opinion about the bombing of Dresden or any other, like, mass bombing event where civilian casualties were heavily incurred. Um, but, I mean, like, Vietnam, of course, is a part of where Kissinger is, you know, is famously derided for. Uh, alongside this, of course, you, you try to see Vietnamization happen. And... Um, I, I do think that it's sort of important to see that like, you know, Vietnamization and having, you know, peace talks uh, may, might be able to happen with, you know, the, those that are there, uh, you know, R.H. Hattleman and John Ilrickman, other, you know, close Kiss, uh, Nixon aides that are, you know, you'll, you'll hear their voices in the, the Kissinger tapes uh, that, you know, we, we have a lot of issues about achieving peace in South Vietnam and how to pull out. Uh, and of course, this is where you get Kissinger's more uh, spicy comments on, on the world as he sees it, you know, that these guys are just a bunch of little, you know, turds for lack of a for lack of, you know, making things clean on the air. But uh, it, it's a really important thing to consider that, um, you know, despite all of our presence there, even after Nixon's gone, uh, Kissinger is still, you know, trying to maintain some level of peace and to keep things going. Uh, nevertheless, like even though you get the Paris Peace Accords in in the nineteen seven like seventy three, 
it doesn't mean much in relation to the fact that like eventually South Vietnam, as we know, it falls. Uh, and, you know, whether or not we should have been there from the beginning uh, raises the question of like, well, what is America's position on like colonial claims after World War II? Um, and we were sort of, you know, initially wanting the French to fight this battle. And even, you know, Kissinger was kind of like ambivalent about further American presence at first. But once we were committed, the realpolitik takes over. And again, like to go into like Kissinger and and Nixon into Vietnam would deserve like far more time than I'm giving it here. And I'm skipping yeah. over a lot of details. But I think it's important to know that most people are critical of Kissinger primarily for his position in the bombing of Cambodia during the 19, late 60s, early in the 1970s, um, on top of, you know, the positions of Salvador Allende and the utilization of the CIA and assassinating targets. And this is where you get sort of this like progressive mythology that the United States is like intelligence apparatus has always been about supporting quote unquote right wing governments um, across the world. But I mean, if you look at like sub-Saharan Africa or America's position during the Suez crisis, You'll notice that America is oddly on the same camp quite a few times as the Soviet Union when it comes to like decolonialization. Um, you know, there's a lot of efforts in South America, South Africa and Central America and um, mainly Northern Africa where we're kind of, you know, pro these revolutionary movements to either divorce them from uh, Europe, but also trying to divorce them from the Soviet Union. And so like I, this is where you get a lot of progressive and mainstream mythology behind Kissinger there. And there are some very, like, I would argue in myself that, you know, it probably would have been better for those territories to be held on by colonial powers, but I don't live in that world. And I, I live in 2023 where Kissinger's died and we, we can look at his record, but uh, it's important to recognize that, like, these are the things that people really have a strong burning moral hatred for. But um, at the same time, like, you can hate the, you know, what he you done to the Cambodians, to the Vietnamese, but again, I, I would hope that you have the same opinion about the hundreds of thousands of more people that would die under the Khmer Rouge. Cause if not, we were being very selective with our, our moral outrage. And uh, you can hate Henry Kissinger, but I hate communists more. <laughs> Fair. Uh, so, so I'm going to ask you a sprawling question here and feel free to answer in whatever direction you prefer. Um, but, but as you were talking about that, I'm thinking to myself, so in the scenario is it a situation in which um, we have multiple post-World War II, post-colonial empires looking to de-ravel the logic that held up those previous world-spanning uh, kind of empires? Is, is that the driving force? Is it a lack of, is it a lack of willingness of many of these uh, of America specifically to understand perhaps the cost of being fully involved in a globe in, in a global order. Is it, is it simply two powers that are kind of doing the, um, that are kind of doing the, uh, you know, powers and arms race and there's simply no other option, but, but expand in this way. And you're simply going to look for, the explanation that that allows you to do so, but you can't let the other guy do it. So it, it maybe you have one explanation and he has the other, you have one political form, he has the other, but the goal has to be the same because, you know, when one guy builds tanks, you got to build tanks. And when guy builds nukes, you got to build nukes. And this is just the, the way that the world orders are the only option. Like what is driving, I guess, at the end of the day, the way that, that they are approaching 
um, control and in intervention in these areas. Like you said, Kissinger in many ways is like, well, you, you just have to do this. There's, there's no other option. And, and is, is that a consequence of, of kind of the storyline of the way that these powers are, are looking to justify their geopolitical positions? Is that a reality? Is that simply a mechanical reality that's inescapable and can't be morally judged? Like, what does that look like? Sure. And I mean, like, that's been the ultimate debate between, say, more Wilsonian idealists, which you could argue Kissinger definitely was towards sort of the end of his more public facing career, which I really you could say at the end of his life. But I mean, from the 1990s onward, you, you could argue and Kissinger would argue that sort of Wilsonian idealism wins. But Wilsonian idealism doesn't win without a lot of like shady men in the dark willing to do evil on your behalf to sort of uh, crypt from that famous George Orwell quote that, you know, we sleep soundly at night because there are men willing to do harm on our behalf. Uh, but I mean, this has been the debate over how, you know, the world order or international relations is structured. Um, for America, more specifically, you'll get individuals like um, William, William Appleman Williams, who I wish more people were politically aware of. I mean, he was a great uh, people kind of call him a leftist, but I, I would argue that he's maybe what you would call like a 19th century progressive where he's kind of like understanding like our way of expansion of empire is maybe not a good thing. But he's got a great book called Empire's a Way of Life and the Tragedy of American Diplomacy or these two books of his. And he would argue that like America has had this sort of imperialist ambition um, from the beginning, both with the American continent, but also like the surrounding area. And after the the conquest of the frontier, sort of Frederick Jackson Turner's thesis, well, the only way that you can expand the frontier is by looking abroad. And so in doing so, you get this sort of like great American conquest of like Central and South America, these filibusters. Um, people don't know this, but like the earliest debate over the use of the Monroe Doctrine isn't about, you know, foreign policy uh, encroachments from like the French or others into like Central and South America from European powers. It's that you know, Congress, like President James K. Polk wanted to use the Monroe Doctrine to save like white filibustering, um, you know, settlers on the Yucatan Peninsula from being like ethnically exterminated from uh, the natives and the the population there. And that's, a, you know, and unfortunately, <laughs> James Madison dies in Congress before you like you get an answer as to like the author's original intent of that policy. But I mean, it, it, with respects to say Kissinger, like the 20th century writ large, there is the question of like, well, where's peace achieved? And so I think Kissinger would probably fall in the same camp as say someone like the late international relations scholar, Kenneth Waltz, where he would argue that, you know, bipolarity did increase the peace and that our technological innovations that come from say like this cold war, wartime, you know, policy uh, greatly expands the, you know, economic and political prosperity of the respective country. Like, you know, everything from GPS to the internet emerges as sort of these Cold War, how do we maintain command and control of the United States after nuclear strike happens? You know, like, this is what ARPANET originally is meant to be, is like, how can we talk to, you know, computers and other parts of the world after a nuclear strike? Uh, same with GPS and the rest. But like, I, I think with respects to the 20th century and the Cold War writ large, you have a system that is sort of this post-1945 liberal order um, which often, uh, as the historian John G. Eikenberry would call liberal hegemony, which is a term you'll hear used by people like Dr. Barry Posen or Dr. John J. Mearsheimer, like that, that is sort of your opposition to this sort of all-encompassing, destructive, 
uh, system of, you know, communism that as we witnessed during this Bolshevik revolution, the interwar years and in the 1940s and World War II and afterwards was just meant hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people would die, um, not just because of how poorly managed communism is, but because communism was the sort of all encompassing idea of like world revolution. And again, this is why Sean McMeekin's 2021 book, Stalin's War, is so important that I'm going through on my channel. But as for Kissinger and to get back maybe to his legacy and to his view on the world, you know, this sort of world order has to encompass, you know, where can you project power and how can you use that as leverage against your opposition? Um, and so, you know, for us, for Kissinger and also to a, a lesser, well, I would argue to a greater extent, Charles de Gaulle, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and China are very different in their, you know, presentation or their utilization and implementation of communism. So, you know, like Maoism or, or Marxist Maoism versus, say, Marxist Leninism of the Soviet Union, this is where you get the ideological Sino-Soviet split. Uh, the Chinese are beginning to criticize the, the Soviets for having a, quote unquote, Soviet empire. Imperialism is antithetical to communism. So what do we do? And even before Nixon was president, the late and arguably great Charles de Gaulle, you know, had famously wrote to Nixon multiple times saying that you should consider the United States should consider a policy avenue towards normalizing relations with China. They're not like the Soviet Union. And that, you know, if you can decouple Peking or, or Beijing, as we know it today, um, from the Soviets, like you've essentially, you know, brought the two largest populations and modernizing countries uh, away from one another. And so Henry Kissinger, of course, is very famous for opening uh, China to the United States. But it also has the same problem that we would later see in the 80s and 90s, sort of after Kissinger's out of any effective policy making position in, in an executive branch, where the, the question of opening China, is that good or bad? I mean, this is, it's a big reason why Ross Perot ran for president. Right. And that with respects to opening up China, you know, a, a lot of American dollars help make, you know, Deng Xiaoping's like, quote unquote, reforms work. In the same way that the reason why the Soviet Union industrializes so rapidly isn't because of Stalin's leadership. It's because a lot of American capitalists and a lot of American like technical expertise went over to the Soviet Union in the 1930s and 40s. And it's really important to consider that um, that on the on the strategic chessboard of like global politics. Yeah, it's a really good idea to separate China from from the Soviet Union. Whereas nowadays, uh, we, we sort of look at that first nation status or first preferred nation status that we have at the World Trade Organization as a disaster. And one can look from like 1984 to like today, where the number of nations who have China as their first trading partner went from the United States to, to China, you know, in a matter of like 40 years. And that's, that's the disaster. Um, and again, this goes back to even Kissinger's like later writings in the early 90s and even in the early 2000s, where it's just, we need a foreign policy. What we are doing is incoherent and we are sort of squabbling and ruining sort of this post-Cold War order. And we're, we're not effectively pointing out a plan to execute and accomplish anything. I mean, like you could argue that like our intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan has been an unmitigated disaster. And I would argue that it is. But, you know, when people were talking about it, you had people like the late neoconservative writer Charles Krauthammer being like, these are the crown jewels of the Middle East. Like we could take them over and we could have like unilateral power in the Middle East in a way that like Russia and China could only dream of. We never did those things. 
Um, and if people want to read more about that, I would recommend people read an article in the American <laughs> Affairs Journal called Data-Driven Defeat, where basically it was just, we have all these charts and rules of engagement limitations on what we can do in there, and we, we have no end game. And that's that's the big problem, I think, with where we are now, is, is that you look at Ukraine or the, the war in Israel or our, our ongoing fear of war with China over Taiwan, the question that no one seems to be asking is what's the end game. And for all the things that you can blame Henry Kissinger on, and there are a lot of things that are definitely worth criticizing. Um, the one thing that at least Henry Kissinger, at least ideologically had in mind was, well, how do we govern or order the world as we know it after the Soviet Union's gone? Uh, whereas nowadays, you know, you have some people are raising questions like, well, what do we do when China reaches power parity? Or what do we do when America can no longer function as like a livable democracy because we've like imported so many people that we can't have a functioning like, you know, civil society, which I would argue we're already there. Good say um, so now. Yeah. Yeah. So now. Right. Yeah. But um, and, and that raises the question, like, well, what, what's your foreign policy going to be and, and how do you govern on the world order? To a point where even like Joe Biden, as senile as he is, he's got people whispering in his ear saying that like the world needs to recognize that like America's not going to be here forever, or at least is like the great power that it is, and you need to learn to get along with other people. And again, like that's really poor planning because if you are still a quote unquote great power, you don't tell people to uh get along without us and while we're gone. Like that, that's something you don't do, you know, no empire lasts forever, but you always have a plan in place to make it sound like you will be. Uh, and unfortunately this class of foreign policy officials, foreign service officers, they're not Henry Kissinger. They're not George Kennan. They're not James Baker. They're not Robert Conquest. They're not Haldeman. And, um, like that's a really important thing to consider because we don't have a living memory of living under the cold war. You and I don't Oren, but, I, I think it's important that when we look at his record or we look at what he's written and done, that we can't divorce like the geopolitical or even just the regular political realities of the United States in, in the midst of that time period. Whereas today, you know, we can look at the anti-war sentiments uh, of the war on terror or, or Israel or Ukraine and so on. And we can definitely judge it with a more fresh pair of eyes. But to sort of conclude this little rambling bit here is, is that you know, every generation has a war that they don't want to compare themselves to. Um, famously, George W. Bush and John Kerry did not want Iraq and Afghanistan to be like Vietnam. They both vividly remembered that. Um, and to some extent, it didn't end up like Vietnam at all. Um, we, we made it more automated and less impersonal. But nowadays, wars are compared on the basis of those conflicts to today. We don't want Ukraine to be another Syria. We don't want Ukraine to be another like way where we get involved or we realize our worst world war three fears between Russia and NATO or whatever. Um, but at the, at this time you were looking at something new and something different, uh, wherein after world war two, uh, you know, for better or for worse, uh, America is the only power that really was un like, you know, not destroyed. It's not its industrial capacity. It's not a population that had been ethnically cleansed or depleted. So it's the world power. And now you have to deal with a, really a savage horde of communists that are ready to take over Eastern Europe and by a larger extent, the rest of sort of like the third non-Western, non-white world. And that was sort of the battle that was being played there. Um, but again, I think the real issue out of that real tragedy of power politics is, is that um, Wilsonian idealism and progressive liberalism in America is very similar to Bolshevism and very similar to communism. And so um, to sort of 
crip from a great tweet by Kovethe and on, uh, you know, Bolshevism kind of is the winner out of the 20th century, unfortunately. And uh, the world order we have tried its best to contain it. But, um, you know, now we live in the consequences of that, that post-Cold War order. And we're, we're kind of watching the, the quote-unquote unipolar moment get squandered as we witness the, the linkage between China, Russia, Iran, and to some lesser extent, India, because we've kind of squandered our relationship with India over the war in Ukraine, because we were already irked by the Indians by buying weapons from Russia. But, you know, now they're buying cheap oil from Russia and we need them in our own, quote unquote, quad alliance against China. What are we doing? And so the lack of strategic planning and a lack of, I would argue, very competent foreign service officers is the great tragedy of Henry Kissinger's career that there are no Kissinger equivalents today. So for people who would say, just to wrap this up real quick, I know you've touched on most of this, but but just, just to put a bow on it, for people who would say, Henry Kissinger is the architect of the global American empire. He's what brought us this neocon moment. He, he's the reason we're here, or he's, he's one of the authors, archi architects of this. How would you respond to that? I would argue what's your definition of neoconservatism? Uh, I mean... Neoconservatism was sort of posited by a question by Max Boot in 2003 in an article in the Wall Street Journal asking, uh, what is neoconservatism? And Max Boot pretty much argued that, uh, you know, it's primarily a foreign policy uh, that is sort of oriented towards fighting against, um, you know, Islamic, but also primarily in supporting of the state of Israel. And if you look at any comment by Henry Kissinger towards Israel, you'll kind of realize that he was not uh, he was not loved by the Israelis at all and still isn't now that he's dead. And that's something important to consider here. Uh, Henry Kissinger, at the very least, was more realistic in his political appraisals of the of the international system and how much power you can put leverage. Whereas nowadays we do this in the, the quote unquote name of democracy or the name of this, but we don't have a plan outwards there. I mean, when Henry Kissinger was still national security advisor, he'd famously told, um, you know, Nixon that like the immigration of Soviet Jews to Israel is not in America's like foreign policy interest. And we shouldn't be concerned about the humanitarian obligations that we might have to them. Um, and this is, of course, was during a fear that the Soviets were going to, to pogrom what was left of, of Slavic and Eastern European Jews in the Soviet Union. But uh, to say that he's like the chief architect of neoconservatism, I would argue that that's probably not the case because neoconservatism, as we know it, really emerges after a bunch of disaffected Trotskyists um, who were primarily, you know, who were leftists originally got really disaffected by the state of affairs in America. I mean, one of the most famous like neoconservatives, Norman Potteritz and his son, John. I mean, Norman Potteritz really starts turning neoconservative after he um, he sort of looks at how the social situation gets in America. This is where you get the famous um, 1963 essay, you know, um, you know, uh, my Negro problem and ours. And later on, he becomes like a very chief principled, like, you know, conservative Judeo-Christian values type guy. We have to support Israel. We have to support American values abroad um, for little more than ideological and some extent like ethno-narcissistic reasons. But to say Henry Kissinger was like the, the chief architect of what that would become, um, I would really suggest that just people look at Kissinger's record compared to, say, you know, David Frum or any sort of like David French neoconservatism today. Like he, you know, there's not a you could argue there's a link between Douglas Murray and Henry Kissinger, but there's not that link is not as strong as you want it to be.
All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and pivot to the questions of the people. We got a few over here, but before we do, sir, where should people check out your excellent work? Uh, people can find me over on YouTube, Odyssey, Telegram, all podcast platforms, Libsyn and such at findmyfriends.net slash the Prudentialist. Um, right now I'm going through the entirety of Sean McMeekin's 21, 2021 book, Stalin's War, New History of World War II. I've got some great guests that have joined me as we read through and discuss the history of this conflict with a, a fresh pair of eyes and understanding the Soviet Union. Um, outside of that, I cover digital ecology, uh, international relations, and the ongoing culture war as we know it. And as always, Warren, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, man. No, I learned a lot. I, this is something that, of course, I knew the outline of, I knew the basics of, but I wanted to go into a deeper dive. Uh, you know, like I said, just that context so that we're not just looking at the McNuggets, the things that get filtered through the internet or through, you know, diff different slogans. And so I'm glad that you took us on a tour so we'd have a better grasp of uh, what Kissinger was about and what his legacy is. All right, guys, let's look at your questions here. Uh, we've got a Tismo prime for one ninety nine. Thank you very much, sir. Y'all, y'all the homies for real, for real. Well, despite your zoomer appellation, I appreciate uh, your, <laughs> your chat. Thank you very much. And Cooper weirdo here for $2. Thanks guys. Very cool. Oh, right, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. I had a good time. Appreciate, uh, coming on and glad that you guys enjoyed it all right well we're gonna go ahead and get out of here guys but before we do of course if this is your first time on this channel please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Oren mcintyre show on your favorite podcast platforms and make sure that you go ahead and like and subscribe to this channel if it's your first time coming by here uh, i think i have a new article coming up on the blizz right now so if you'd like to go read that you can go check that out Thank you for coming by, guys. Thanks to Prude once again for coming on. And as always, I will talk to you next time.